Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Future Cities podcast. Today, we are discussing green infrastructure and particularly the polysemy surrounding the term. This is not our first podcast on green infrastructure, otherwise known as GI. So if you are interested in hearing more, check out the episode descriptions to locate those previous podcasts. Anyway, I'm Alicia Helmrich, and I am one of your two hosts today. I'm a PhD candidate at Arizona State University in Civil, Environmental, and Sustainable Engineering, where I explore various design methods to advance infrastructure resilience. Micah, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Alicia, and hello, everyone. My name is Micah Hamann, and I am a researcher at the Center for Sustainability Transitions at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. I'm interested in green infrastructure or nature-based solutions and how they can play a role in improving the well-being of urban residents in cities across the world, but especially in the global south. And I also like to think about things in terms of social ecological systems and how resilience can be enhanced within these systems to create the space and opportunity for more positive transformations towards sustainable and just futures. Micah and I met through a symposium. Get ready, get sets, GI, as did all the participants on today's podcast. This symposium, hosted by graduate fellows of the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, brought together approximately 50 early career individuals in academia and practice who are interested in advancing the dialogue surrounding green infrastructure, particularly around a SETS perspective. SETS are social, ecological, technological systems that are interrelated and interdependent, obviously such as green infrastructure. If you are interested in learning more about SETS, we have a podcast dedicated to this topic, again, listed in the description. We also have a link to our website, which not only provides a way to contact us, but also presents a synthesis of our symposium, highlighting key principles for green infrastructure implementation. Yes, and one thing that became immediately clear, I think at the symposium, was that there are so many different interpretations and perspectives of quote unquote green infrastructure. And so we were really intrigued by this diversity. And so for today's podcast, we're going to explore the many different perspectives and understandings of green infrastructure that exist not only in academic circles, but also in the community of practice around urban planning and development. So to give you a glimpse into the diversity views on the topic, we've invited four early career graduate fellows with different disciplinary backgrounds to talk about their understanding of green infrastructure and how their field of expertise applies the concept of green infrastructure. So over to our guests to introduce themselves. Uh, hello, my name is Vinicius Taguchi. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota, uh, working at the St. Anthony Falls Laboratory, where I focus on uh, urban hydrology and stormwater management. So my name is Stephen Elser. I'm an environmental life sciences PhD candidate in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. My name is Claire Cooper. I'm currently a PhD student um, at Durham University. Um, I was previously part of the Nitrovation Research Program at Durham, led by Harriet Berkeley. I'm uh, Dr. Zbigniew Jakub Krabowski, uh, otherwise known as Z, and I'm a postdoc at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, uh, as well as the Urban Systems Lab at the New School. And I'm an assistant adjunct professor at Portland State University. Uh, and I'll also be teaching at Eastern Connecticut State University, where I focus on issues of environmental governance, infrastructure, transitions, and um, issues of equity of justice um, that cut across both governance and infrastructure. 
Now that we have everyone introduced, our first question for each of our guests is, how would your discipline or sector define green infrastructure? Yeah, I think if you ask 10 engineers their uh, definition for green infrastructure, you'll probably get 15 different answers. Um, but the main principles that I keep hearing over and over are related to low impact development, which I think maybe just came a little earlier in this field. And the main principle of low impact development is to mimic the natural hydrology that existed prior to the development. So in terms of the amount of stormwater runoff that's coming off of a property, how much infiltration is occurring, how much evapotranspiration is occurring. And, and that's really the main focus. So when they started taking advantage of green infrastructure as a way to achieve that, that's been the priority is just getting the water balance correct. So it, it really feels like the other ecosystem services and benefits that green infrastructure provides have kind of been secondary benefits, selling points, you know, nice to have, but not really the, the priority to make sure occur. Um, thankfully, that's been changing in recent years. Uh, there's been more and more focus on mitigating urban heat islands, on improving air quality. Where I see that intersect with my work is that I'm primarily focused on urban stormwater ponds, for whatever reason, uh, aren't considered green infrastructure by many engineers. I, I guess that from a purely hydraulic standpoint, uh, they store water and then let it go. So it's not really doing infiltration. It's probably not a significant amount of evapotranspiration. But especially working with people in other fields on green infrastructure, it seems to fit right in from my perspective. It provides habitat, there's wildlife there. You know, it, it could be contributing to different parts of the environment, uh, just holding water in the landscape. So I, I, I think it's a, if, if we broaden our understanding of green infrastructure, it fits right in. Thank you, Vinny. Claire, do you also find that the definition tends to be narrow within various disciplines? So I think for me, how green infrastructure is kind of defined is slightly different from how it might be defined from a practice perspective and also an academic perspective. So within the Nature Vision project that I'm part of, it's recently just ended, green infrastructure is talked about in relation to green areas for water management. So that's very much about stormwater management, so swales, suds, um, and other similar types of stormwater interventions. But it's also talked about in relation to um, urban parks and gardens, if you think about the role of green corridors. Um, but then also green space that's connected to green infrastructure. So if you think about green walls, if you think about a garden, anything that kind of is adapting green infrastructure um, to help with um, stormwater management would be kind of considered to be green infrastructure, if you like. So for me, I think that an urban park that has a role in terms of providing recreation, supporting physical health and mental well-being is also a form of green infrastructure. Thank you, Claire. Stephen, could you define green infrastructure within your field, but also elaborate on the term ecosystem services, which I think speaks to this multidimensionality explored by both Vinny and Claire? My predominant uh, academic hat would be one of an ecologist. So when I was uh, 
reading a lot of papers, first getting interested in green infrastructure, a, a definition that I saw a lot uh, was something sort of like this. It's basically an, an, an interconnected network of green space um, that sort of conserves natural ecosystem, natural environmental values and functions, and uh, importantly, provides associated benefits or ecosystem services to humans. Ecosystem services are just the benefits that people get from the environment, some very tangible uh, things that one can extract or consume. So that would be provisioning services, like say getting food from a garden or going hunting or fishing or whatever. Those would be, there are also uh, regulating ecosystem services. These are things like uh, a tree cooling down the, the nearby environment by providing shade and evapotranspiration. And then there are cultural services, which are less tangible things a park provides an opportunity for recreation. It provides us a, a meeting space to improve social cohesion. So these are all examples of ecosystem services. Thanks, Stephen. Z, you recently analyzed the uses of the term green infrastructure. Could you speak toward this? I've been doing a lot of work recently where I've looked at how city plans in the United States uh, define green infrastructure. You know, so taking a fairly you know, abductive approach. Like we, we think there's a term that means something, what does it actually mean to the people who are using it to do something with it? And there we found that it, it takes on a variety of meetings and it's predominantly driven by the EPA's uh, regulatory mandates for cities to comply with the Clean Water Act. And in that case, green infrastructure is seen as a stormwater management tool. And it also does touch on the sort of tr more traditional like landscape and urban planning, um, conservation planning concept that pertains to how landscapes are treated as like connected patches of ecosystem elements that provide numerous functions. And there's also something that's emergent that we found is that people are really trying to synthesize those two. So you know, trying to meet Clean Water Act regulations, um, which rely on facilities that have like a set functional or have really defined functions in terms of their pollutant removal efficiencies, in terms of how they attenuate stormwater flows then tie those into a broader set of landscape elements that don't fit within the EPA's regulatory framework. Like the EPA can't tell you how much fertilizer to put on your lawn, for instance. They can't tell you how to do residential landscaping. They can't tell you how to manage municipal parks. That's not within their remit. That's not within the city's permits. But they have this broad scope of voluntary activities that can contribute to meeting their permit goals. And so cities are essentially experimenting with, well, just how much can we modify like the core urban fabric, like basic infrastructure systems, roads, transportation networks, uh, municipal facilities, buildings, parking lots, all the, all the elements of the urban fabric really need to be changed to change how water flows through it. And that also is the, the basis for understanding the city as an ecosystem and thinking about how do you actually improve the quality of the ecosystem? And then the big question is, you know, quality for whom, uh, by whom? And so I think those are the kind of key characteristics is that you're trying to, just using that concept, people are really not just transforming how they plan for green elements or ecosystem elements, but they really are trying to get into the, the fundamental characteristics of the urban fabric in terms of evolving the built environment. Thank you, Z. It's really interesting to hear about the different definitions and meanings of green infrastructure from our, from our guests. Taking green infrastructure on the spectrum from, from a more constrained stormwater management tool to, all the way to a, like a holistic urban planning approach. And one key thing that, that, you know, in this context has always struck me about green infrastructure is how it's becoming increasingly important um, in, in conversations around enhancing resilience in cities. 
um, specifically in terms of mitigating against growing climate change impacts like extreme heat and sort of the increased frequency and severity of storm events. And so it, you know, green infrastructure as something that can help mitigate against climate change and other global change uh, impact is one way to think of green infrastructure as building resilience. And another way to think about it is in terms of retaining options. Um, so we know that, you know, retaining options is a, is a characteristic of resilient systems and green infrastructure being a more sort of flexible approach is, is le less of a lock-in, if you will. So if you're going to put in a gray infrastructure stormwater management system, you're kind of going to be stuck with that for a while, right? I mean, at least a few decades. And so with green infrastructure, there's more flexibility and it provides or it, it leaves open more options to change, adapt, and, and maybe even transform if your original intent or need or, or purpose changes. So from a number of points of view, green infrastructure is actually something that can help enhance resilience of a city. And it seems like the disciplines represented here among our guests have embraced this idea of green infrastructure as a way to build resilience and contribute in multidimensional ways to the well-being of urban residents. And but beyond this, I'd really like to know from our guests how their own discipline has advanced green infrastructure implementation in recent years. And so to start us off, um, let's go over to you, Stephen. So I am uh, personally an advocate for uh, the urban ecological infrastructure term. Uh, so this is something that was defined by Dan Childers and others a few years ago in a paper. Uh, and it's this approach or to, to understanding urban nature that's really like inclusive of all sorts of ecological structures in a city. So they have this uh, color breakdown to sort of like conceptualize the different types of nature. So it could be brown urban ecological infrastructure. Uh, so brown UEI would be things like bare soil. There is blue UEI, which are like aquatic systems in the city. So that could be like a canal or a pond. Turquoise UEI features, which are things like wetlands. So blue elements as well as green elements. And then, like I said, there's green UEI. So that's the more conventional sort of green infrastructures. And I think like as ecologists, just to study just the sliver of the ecological infrastructure and the green infrastructure, we're really only going to understand a very small portion of our cities. And, and also beyond that for implementation and practice, different types of ecological infrastructure features provide different benefits or again, ecosystem services, as I was describing them earlier. There's uh, this, this really great example of green infrastructure in uh, the Phoenix area in Scottsdale, which is one of the cities within the Phoenix metropolitan area, called the Indian Bend Wash Greenbelt. And that's a sort of classic example of green infrastructure in the Phoenix Valley. And that's a pretty interesting story behind it. So in, in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of flooding in the Scottsdale area. It was causing you know, millions of dollars of damage uh, to homes and businesses. And uh, so the, the residents of Scottsdale and the city of Scottsdale, they wanted to address this. So the city of Scottsdale solicited the Army Corps of Engineers for help. And the Army Corps suggested a six-mile-long, 170-foot-wide concrete channel to deal with their flooding events. So if you've ever... Um, been to LA or seen various like Hollywood movies, you you maybe seen the Los Angeles River, or you can look it up right now on Google Images, and, and that's basically what it would have looked like. It's just this big, kind of ugly concrete channel. 
And the South Dakota residents weren't very happy with that idea. So they rejected it and they formed a committee to brainstorm other possible solutions. And what they came up with was this green belt, which is now the Indian Benwash green belt. And uh, so they came up with this idea and then following a really destructive flood in, I think, 1973, Scottsdale voters approved a bond issue for flood control, and then that's what sort of spurred the creation of the Green Belt. That's when the building of it actually began. And so now it's this 11-mile uh, stretch. They call it Green Belt, but it's more than just green. So it has lakes, it has parks, it has paths, golf courses, playgrounds, picnic areas, you know, and more. So it's this, and it's one of the you know, most visited parks in the state. It's a great example of safe-to-fail infrastructure, uh, which is which just means that it was designed to uh, flood when there's rain. So uh, some parts of the park won't be super usable, but the surrounding homes and businesses uh, are safe because that area is now flooding by design in a, uh, in a way that it doesn't cause much damage. So it's a great example of that. It's a great example of a social, ecological, technological system. There's even like art incorporated into some of their flood management uh, and, and it's even an example of how social pressure can be used to create leverage and guide, you know, a city towards what the community uh, wants for their future. That is a great example, Stephen. Benny, to switch gears a bit, you study the longevity of GI. So I think that I guess the biggest umbrella way to describe this would probably be thinking through what is this infrastructure going to be in, you know, 20 years, 30 years? What is the full lifespan of this? Um, because what, what we're noticing now, you know, 20, 30 years since the first green infrastructure started going in is a lot of it stopped working a while ago. Um, it hasn't really been maintained. Sometimes it's underground. It's been forgotten. And there wasn't really much thought given to how do we keep these non-traditional systems going. It, once you pour concrete, it's probably good to go for about 40 years. So there, there wasn't as much of a maintenance mindset um, when a lot of these things were being designed, uh, rain gardens, underground infiltration systems, and things like that. So the whole field seems to have been playing catch up for the past 10 years or so. As these things have stopped working, we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we design them better? How can we maintain them better? Because of that catch up, there, we're also discovering a lot of things that were never considered. And, you know, that that's part of what I see uh, more specifically with my research with stormwater ponds. They were built a while ago. They're supposed to store the water. People realized, you know, as this water sits here temporarily, it also captures a lot of pollutants. That's great. Um, and when it fills up, I guess we'll empty it out. And that, that's about all the maintenance consideration that was given to them. But now that it's come time to empty them out uh, because they're releasing phosphorus as they've accumulated so much organic matter, uh, we're finding that, well, they've also accumulated a lot of harms, harmful substances. So when we scoop out all the sediment, we can't just put that anywhere. We actually have to put it in a uh, confined landfill and treat it as hazardous waste, which makes it way more expensive uh, to empty out a pond. So it's not really a sustainable maintenance practice. So now everyone's trying to figure out, well, what can we do so we don't have to empty out the ponds because that's too expensive. So it, you know, have we solved a problem or have we just changed which problem we're dealing with? And, and that's where I, 
you know, a, a lot of folks are, are thinking more in that way now. We're trying to say, you know, what, what is going to be the end result of our actions? Because I want to think that the work I'm doing now isn't just, you know, creating a job for someone 20 years from now. I want to have solved something. And uh, as we're talking more about those things, particularly nowadays in, you know, in Minneapolis, in a post-George Floyd world, unfortunately, people are taking a much stronger look at social equity, at uh, social justice, and what, what is the social impact of our work. And it's, it's civil engineering. It's for people. It's in cities. So there's going to be a social impact no matter what we do. And because it hasn't always been on the minds of engineers and city developers, the social impacts of our work and green infrastructure haven't always been the ones we probably wanted. It's something that really bothers me because coming into this field post uh, environmental justice movement, you know, I'm thinking, wow, green infrastructure, we're solving all the pollution, we're creating healthy neighborhoods, that's great. But then you look at who's living in those neighborhoods after the projects go in and no, we're not helping these communities, we're helping the communities that are replacing them. Uh, There's been a project out of the University of Minnesota called the CREATE Initiative, which has been looking more specifically at uh, green gentrification. So all this gentrification that happens as a result of green infrastructure and what can we do from a policy standpoint, from a city community partnership standpoint to prevent those unintended social consequences and make sure that everyone can benefit uh, from the greening of our cities. So I'm really excited to see some of the work that people are doing now, some of the things they're looking at, and how we're really trying to bring the Jedi principles into our work, the justice, equity, uh, diversity, and inclusion, so that these projects are for the community, they are by the community, they are of the community, and that's how we make sure that they actually serve the community. Claire, I believe you have an example of community engagement regarding green infrastructure from the Urban Nature Atlas database. So within the Nature Vision project, the project created um, a database called the Urban Nature Atlas. But within that database, there are a number of different case studies and some of the um, have adopted quite innovative approaches. Examples of green infrastructure include um, the Mallings development in, in Newcastle, which um, is right on the banks of the, the river of the Ooze Tree. Now, that was a new housing development, um, and that incorporated Suds Wales to reduce runoff, but it also included things like community gardens. Now, though there are issues with that development because it is an expensive de development and there are questions about who it's for and whether or not it's gentrifying the area. But I think for me personally, what I would like to see in uh, our, the region where I come from, but elsewhere also, is to kind of take the really good work that's been done to kind of encourage communities um, uh, and local residents, disadvantaged groups, to kind of engage with green infrastructure in some way. So whether that be through community gardening, um, the type of work that um, I've been involved with up at Greening Wingrove, whereby you're very much encouraging people to green their own spaces, improve the amount of green space and therefore you know, indirectly green infrastructure and kind of take that and apply that to different sectors. 
because at the moment, um, how we think about engaging citizens through agency with green infrastructure is something that I feel very strongly that we need to improve on, but we've got to think about how we do it. Um, because getting people to interact with their green infrastructure, whether that be through, you know, park maintenance or, you know, clearing up a sud that's been filled with lots of litter, getting people to take responsibility and ownership for that, um, that's a huge challenge and something that I'm very interested in trying to unpick and help figure out how we can resolve that. That's an excellent pursuit, incorporating individual initiatives in the space of green infrastructure. Z, could you answer how your discipline is approaching the advancement of green infrastructure quality? Yeah, I think there's two big things there. And that one, I would return to that word quality. Um, I think people have kind of shied away from it and they focused on a very sort of utilitarian construct, like, you know, the ecosystem services paradigm, for example, is saying, you know, we're going to get things out of nature. They'll be defined and measurable. Uh, be they, you know, even things that are kind of loose, like psychological benefits or cultural benefits is, it's really thinking about, you know, how does nature do something for you? And the approaching at it from like a quality of life and environmental quality perspective, I think offers something a little bit different where it speaks more directly to the human experience. And it's asking, you know, what, is, what are the qualities of the city that we want? You know, what kind of quality of life do we want? And how do we get there? And then seeing all sort of human endeavor as an approach to attain that quality rather than you know, purely sort of economically reductionist framework, which is saying, well, we have an external construct of, oh, there needs to be a, a net cost benefit. And that's the basis for decision-making. A quality-based approach is saying, well, what's the actual goal? Uh, what kind of life do we actually want to live? And then what tools and approaches are useful for getting there and which ones don't serve as well? So from that, you know, I, I kind of think of it as like a metacognition perspective, um, which is rooted in a little bit in sort of like a Buddhist epistemology where you're you're taking a step back and you're observing, well, how do the different thought frameworks we use contribute or detract from our experience? And if we're going to use a framework or a construct to get to try to a different experience, if we're not satisfied with our experience of life or, you know, collectively dissatisfied with our experience of life, we need to collectively reflect on, well, what are the ways and patterns of thinking um, that you know, are, have constructed that, have, have produced that sort of negative experience in the world. In terms of cities in the U.S., you know, have, they're fraught with climate challenges, you know, pollution, massive social inequality. So I think we do need to take a step back and kind of evaluate, like, what are the epistemologies that have led us into this place? What are the basic ways of understanding and perceiving the world that have enabled us to construct a society, infrastructure systems that have these problems embedded within them? And do we need different approaches for thinking um, to, to get us out of this. And I think focusing on quality and mobilizing society to achieve a quality of life is one way to do that. And the other big thing I'd like to see more of, well, I guess I'm going to add a third, third element to this, but the, the other big thing is, is approaching you know, ecosystems in a relational sense and not just seeing them as you know, a passive collection of bodies um, or like a you know, plant that, oh, isn't this tree nice? It provides shade and fresh air but to really think of a tree as, as a kin, or at least as a living being with agency, and one that's striving to provide for its own you know, quality of life, not just improve ours. And then from that point of view, we ask ourselves, well, if we expect something from this tree or want something from this tree, what should the tree expect from us? And what should we provide to that tree? It's, 
it becomes more of an exchange um, than just kind of a one-way thing. And I think humans are equipped to do that. You know, we are empathetic animals. Um, we're also very imaginary animals. We can imagine uh, different futures. So I think by engaging in like relationships with nature, we can sort of collectively uh, engage in a different imagined future that has more space for for non-humans as active agents in shaping that world. And that I think will ultimately increase the effectiveness of, of transforming systems because now we're seeing um, natural beings as co-creators of that world. It's not just up to us. It's up to us to understand their role in it. Uh, but we're not, we don't have to be controlling everything. And the third thing is, you know, especially from like an urban planning point of view is that it, it relates to the other two because I think if we look at green infrastructure as like just a strategy or just like, you know, a set of tools, um, which often gets referred to, um, and in like the socio-environmental or socio-ecological technological systems literature, there's, there's some kind of emerging bifurcation too, where, you know, we, we look at like systems as composed of, of pieces or components. I think those ways of thinking about GI and sets are a little bit limited because we're really trying to break things down into objects to interact. But the, in line with kind of what I was just saying about you know, paradigm shifting, I think what we're getting at is that all these objects have the social, environmental, technological dimensions embedded within them. And for effective planning, we need to understand those relationships that produce the, the phenomena at hand. So for, to be an effective sort of green infrastructure plan, you can't limit the scope of it to just a number of you know, specific interventions, like, say biospills. You're going to need to understand you know, how the entirety of the urban fabric functions as a cohesive whole to influence the phenomena that you're interested in. So like stormwater, for instance, and water quality can't really just be effectively managed through a set number of facilities. They have to be managed at the source. And this has been a long running debate in sort of environmental movement in the US where a lot of regulation gets you know, framed as end of pipe. So you're essentially dealing with the problems you know, when they become apparent rather than at their cause. And so I think in terms of the effectiveness of green infrastructure planning, if we transform it by you know, focusing on the actual social goals that we're trying to achieve, thinking critically and expansively about like what relationships need to be altered, what practices need to be altered to achieve those goals, that will ultimately allow us to be more effective um, in terms of changing how cities, towns, and um, uh, function in relationship to their ecology. Thank you. Those were really thought-provoking insights into some of the advancements we've seen in green infrastructure planning and implementation from thinking more about longevity and maintenance right from the start to really foregrounding community needs in green infrastructure design and addressing social impacts uh, more clearly, more directly. And then also this idea that green infrastructure is part of a process of working towards a set of social goals to enhance quality of life in a more systemic and comprehensive manner that not only respects the nature of green infrastructure as part of an intertwined and interdependent social, ecological, and technological system, but also embraces a more relational and reciprocal view of the human nature connection. 
And to me, what all of this speaks to is the need to acknowledge and consider the diversity of values and perspectives in green infrastructure planning and implementation. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so a lot of people talk about diversity, like it's this goal, it's something that I guess we should do because it looks good, but I view it as the easiest way to solve these complicated problems. And the, the reason being that green infrastructure is so intersectional. There's so many different fields and um, points of view coming together in any one, pra in any one project that it, you know, it'd be impossible for one person to have a mastery of civil engineering and mechanical engineering and electrical engineering, biology, chemistry, sociology, be well connected with community members, be well connected with the local politics. Like it, it, it's just too much for one person or even one team to handle. So I think that having as many people at the table as possible, having people from all walks of life, all parts of the community, all fields of study, just really helps because, you know, it, there's going to come a point in the, in the project where decisions are being made and the people at the table are responsible for seeing the little red flag going up and saying, okay, we need to put a pause and, and take a look at this one, make sure that this doesn't lead to a problem. And the more people you have at that table, the more likely that someone's going to see that little red flag a little sooner, or it's going to go up a little higher and they realize that this is more important. And it, I think it just saves a lot of headache for the project manager at the end of the day because things will get thought of sooner. So it's, to me, it's a no-brainer. It's, it's the easiest way to solve these problems. It's, let's get a lot of people involved. Claire, in terms of um, a diversity of views and stakeholders, you have experiences uh, in considering an angle in green infrastructure that is often overlooked, which is that of public health. So I'm really interested in this, not just because it's very topical at the moment with a COVID pandemic, but because also there's, there's been a lot of work done over the years to better understand the importance of nature in cities in terms of mental and physical health. So when you're talking about public health and green infrastructure, what are some of the, you know, obvious synergies uh, that you see and that, that we can take advantage of? Um, could you, could you unpack that a little bit for us? So uh, th there's a whole wealth of different evidence um, from research that shows what the impact of different green spaces, green infrastructure is on mental health and well-being. And at the moment, we're not taking a step back and thinking about, you know, how we design an urban park, how we design a green corridor, how we design some green infrastructure in terms of where that's located and who actually gets to benefit from that. We're also not thinking about how we engage with society um, in terms of the opportunities to not just consult people, but actually give people responsibility um, to be able to help manage, design, implement those projects. Um, and as a result of that, that then impacts on people's own capacity to be able to kind of go off and, and try and implement these types of projects on their own. So they create issues of 
distributional and participatory injustice. Using a nature-based solutions kind of framework, thinking about green infrastructure, this allows us to kind of take a step back and think, right, okay, how can we design um, green infrastructure projects that are delivering multiple benefits, that are engaging with communities in the right way to be able to kind of prevent issues of climate justice and distributional and procedural injustice. I think we're only just kind of beginning to understand what changes that we need to make. Thanks, Claire. Z, would you like to expand on that point of addressing injustices? There's always been an appetite for, for social and environmental justice in America. Like ever since you know European colonization, there's been a demand for, for justice. Uh, ever since there was a, an active slave trade, there's been a demand for justice. Uh, there's increasing, on one hand, it seems like there's increasing demands for justice in this kind of like justice moment of, you know, after George Floyd's murder and a widespread social unrest across cities in the U.S. But I, what I think is happening is not that the demands have really increased because they've been there the whole time. I think there is a shift in social consciousness and appetite for change. I think many more people are realizing that the current systems of thinking, systems of decision-making, the political, the financial, the economic institutions that run the country don't actually take into the interests of the majority of the population. And so we're in an interesting time where there's a collective realization that the dominant paradigms and the institutions that they enable and that promote those paradigms are failing and we're searching for something new. And that something new is not going to effectively emerge out of the existing institutions. But that has to come from a more diverse set of life experiences. It has to come from those who have been disproportionately harmed and impacted by the current system of decision-making and thinking. And so that creates many opportunities for change and it's not up for any single individual to kind of say exactly what those are gonna be. But there is a recognition that these pluralist processes are important and that is the kind of way forward is to not center any single set of perspectives, but really open up, you know, the, the idea space, the discourse, the, the thinking about what needs to be done and how to get there to a much more um, diverse range of, of actors and experiences than has historically been the case. And in terms of green infrastructure, I think that opens up a lot of opportunities when you start bringing uh, people, you know, who haven't been included in decision-making into decision-making. The, the other big thing I'll say there is that, you know, we have this like common metaphor of bringing more people to the table. While, you know, that the sort of logic of inclusion, I think makes sense. Like, oh yeah, we'll bring more perspectives into the existing decision-making space. We'll bring more people into the decision-making space. Now it'll change the types of decisions that are getting made. My issue, and this is, comes out of a lot of critical analysis of like participatory planning paradigms, is that if the nature of the table doesn't change, if the nature of the institution that houses the table doesn't change, the goals of the institution don't change, then you're very unlikely to get different decisions. What instead happens is you get a compression and a sort of reformulation and a condensation of diverse perspectives and opinions to meet the pre-established goals. So we need a, we need a paradigm shift around you know, the, the goals. And I think if the goals are to really eliminate these environmental problems and to figure out how to generate food and you know, power and have transportation and housing and heating and cooling within a way that doesn't cause environmental harm in the first place, that's, that creates many, many opportunities for change. And like I said, those aren't just about planting trees or adding biosphills. That's really about trans fundamentally transforming and evolving 
infrastructure systems that, that make like contemporary life possible. And the, what that means in a specific context, specific city and neighborhood, that really has to be driven by the people who actually live there and are affected by that. I must say that I really appreciate these deep reflections on what it takes to genuinely embrace a diversity of perspectives and, you know, to go beyond just a superficial acknowledgement so that you can quickly return to business as usual. Um, I think it, it links right back to our original intent for this episode, which was, you know, to highlight and discuss the many different perspectives on green infrastructure that exist. And what I I think our guests have illustrated so beautifully is that perspectives, both personal and disciplinary perspectives, can and do change. And that's a testament to a lot of hard work that's gone into our collective understanding of how to do a better job of designing and developing livable cities, not just for some, but for all. And I believe this evolution in thinking has also been made possible because green infrastructure is inherently an inter or transdisciplinary and cross-sectoral endeavor that quite naturally spans the boundaries of social, ecological, and technological disciplines and sectors, as well as you know, the boundaries of communities and agencies, of implementers and stakeholders, et cetera, which means that there has been a lot of perhaps forest and perhaps sometimes difficult discussion and development at these boundaries which has meant that we've all had to expand our horizons and be creative. And that's a real value addition. Not to say that there isn't still a lot of work that has to be done. And I think our guests have highlighted where some of those gaps still exist. But I think the evolution of green infrastructure so far has shown creativity and patience and out of the box thinking. And that really gives me hope for our future green infrastructure endeavors. I think that brings up another important point. Resilience work is complex. It's multidimensional, nonlinear, and unpredictable. A SEPS lens provides an opportunity to address this complexity through this overlapping governance, through these variety of perspectives that you've just mentioned. And so by encouraging oversight from individuals across disciplines, and with this overlapping authority, we create space for inclusive dialogue as well as a system of checks and balances. I think something that's been highlighted across our guest responses today has been to also recognize the knowledge of individuals who we may not initially consider experts, such as community members. Because in reality, these people have a wealth of local knowledge from living and working within their communities that can really help a green infrastructure project, you know, blossom. That's such a good point. Um, and I think during our symposia series, there were many conversations that we had about how we, the people who study or implement green infrastructure product, projects or really any project uh, in a community could really work to better serve that community, right? Right, well, an engineer may approach the implementation of green infrastructure projects as purely a flood mitigation tool a community may want the project to address other needs such as recreational space. But further, flood mitigation may not even be a priority of the community. So recognizing that green infrastructure only serves as one piece of the puzzle when working toward a community's vision and really exploring how we can advocate to further advance their vision. For instance, how can we address affordable housing, making sure that green infrastructure projects don't displace the current community? 
Are there nonprofits or other organizations to partner with? It's important to have all these perspectives when addressing such a complex problem. And obviously not every aspect will be addressed at implementation, but identifying those adjacent objectives can set a precedent for future discussions and iterations of the project. Yeah, absolutely, Alicia, I totally agree. And when you think about the complexity you've just described, but then sort of applying that to cities in the global south, where urban planning and development often takes place in very different settings of informality and rapid growth and limited resources, it becomes especially important to embrace such an approach that sees green infrastructure as one piece, albeit an important piece, of a puzzle that has to address a wide variety of present and future needs, as well as redressing past injustices. All right, folks, that is all we have for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we promise there will be more green infrastructure episodes in the future. Also, thank you to all our guests on today's podcast. To wrap up, we will leave everyone with these haikus. So as it turns out, green infrastructure is hard, but we persevere. One, two perspectives, collaborate together, uniting GI. The Future Cities podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.